It's the Victorian Variety Show. It was delightful to watch her and listen to her. Her operations have been compared to Ledger Domain. So deftly and expeditiously are they performed. But it is not the object of her conjuring to mystify, but to make clear. Her talk is not meant to divert the attention of her hearers and so heighten the surprise that is in store for them, but to show how they may do for themselves what she so gracefully and effectively performs. Mrs. Marshall wastes nothing. She does not even waste words. Still less does she waste time. When her luncheon is finished, her work is done. There is no litter behind to clear up. She believes in sending out a meal from the kitchen as neatly as she serves it in the dining room and in leaving the kitchen as orderly at the end of her operations as at the beginning. She works, in fact, without fuss and without stain. The aprons she and her assistants wore on Monday may do for any number of pretty luncheons. They must have been worn for form's sake. Their protective value was wholly fanciful. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, my bi-weekly examination of people and phenomena that, I think, made this historical period so interesting. My name is Marissa, and the quote I just read is a description that appeared in the August 16th, 1887, Leeds Mercury, of a cooking demonstration given by A.B. Marshall, who I recently learned about and am utterly fascinated by. And hopefully, you will be too by the end of this episode. I've been really excited about doing this one, because I've been wanting to do a food-related episode for a long time for the simple reason that I love food. Although I'm not a great cook and don't currently live in a space with a kitchen conducive to a lot of cooking or baking, I love to look at photos of food and occasionally post my own on social media. And I love to learn about its history and customs surrounding it. However, one thing I try to do on this show is look at topics from a somewhat unconventional perspective and I didn't feel I could put my research on Victorian era food together in a way that would allow for much besides info dumping until now. And since we just celebrated Thanksgiving in the States and Christmas and New Year's are on the horizon, I feel like it's a great time to do a food related episode. That's why I decided to take another look at Victorian era food. And while reading an overview of Victorian cuisine on Wikipedia, I feel like I literally stumbled upon A.B. Marshall. And I'm glad, because even though some, like Michael Waters, who wrote an article called The 19th Century Entrepreneur Who Pioneered Modern Ice Cream, see her as a quote-unquote culinary disruptor, which I think is awesome because I'm always on the lookout for Victorians who were ahead of their time, the impression that I got after reading a few articles on Marshall is that she's not nearly as well known today as perhaps she should be. So I'm aiming to change that. 
Unfortunately, not much seems to be known about the early life of Marshall. Aside from the fact that she was born Agnes Bertha Smith in Walthamstow, Essex in England on August 24th, 1855. This applies not only to her family background, but also to her culinary training and education. In 1886, her husband, Alfred Marshall, noted in an interview that she, quote, made a thorough study of cookery since she was a child and has practiced at Paris and with Vienna's celebrated chefs, end quote. And Marshall herself once wrote that she'd received, quote, practical training and lessons through several years from leading English and continental authorities, end quote. However, in Meet Agnes B. Marshall, the Victorian Queen of Ice Cream, Bridget Katz suggests that given the lack of detail we find in these descriptions, it almost seems as though Marshall quote, suddenly appears as a charismatic force on London's culinary scene, end quote, when she and Alfred purchased what was then known as the National Training School of Cookery on Mortimer Street in January of 1883, which on the one hand frustrates me because I would love to learn more about the types of culinary training that were available, especially to women in the mid 19th century. And on the other, because I went through a period during which I watched the Food Network obsessively, at least until I became a hardcore fan of the late Anthony Bourdain and kind of forgot about the rest of them, I love the fact that she almost pops up like some kind of culinary superhero. Or, at the very least, a spiritual predecessor of Martha Stewart, Rachel Ray, and the like, due not only to her culinary prowess, but also, as we're about to see, her savvy business sense. According to Wikipedia, although the original records of the purchase of the cooking school, which the Marshalls renamed, appropriately enough, Marshall School of Cookery, don't appear to have survived, there is evidence that Marshall used her own money to buy the school. Of course, the idea of women legally owning their hard-earned money was still relatively new, having been granted by an act of parliament in 1870, and married women didn't have the legal right to own and control their own property until August of 1882, less than six months before the Marshall School opened its doors. So it's not surprising to me that whoever's money was used, the couple opened the school together. But it seems pretty clear that Mrs. Marshall was the driving force behind the school practically from the beginning. Which is not to say that the school was an immediate success. According to Waters, quote, not a single soul showed up, end quote, on the first day of classes. But Marshall was not to be discouraged and placed ads in local papers that were aimed at middle-class chefs looking to try their hand at higher-end cuisine. The school's main focus seems to have been on higher-end English and French cuisine, often in a dinner party setting. And by 1884, Waters tells us Marshall taught five to six classes, some of which boasted up to 40 students per week. Eventually, the roster of prominent lecturers grew to include an English colonel who taught classes in curry making, which presumably he'd learned during his military service in India, and a graduate of Le Cordon Bleu. Unfortunately, Wikipedia doesn't give their names, 
but it does tell us that before long, the Marshall School was one of only two major cooking schools in London, the other one being the National Training School of Cookery. Although I think the story about how the school was purchased and how Marshall earned the attention of prospective students is impressive in itself, given that at that time it was still pretty rare for women to have this level of involvement in a business, in actuality, Marshall was just getting started. In 1885, she published her first book, The Book of Ices, through her cookery school. And as we take a look at this volume, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, along with all of the other sources that I used in putting this episode together, I think this is where we'll start to see why some consider Marshall to be a quote-unquote disruptor. Before I go any further, though, I do want to emphasize that ice cream was not a new thing during the Victorian era. Waters explains that this frozen treat existed in some form or other since around the early 1700s. Although back then, considerations such as flavor took a backseat to getting a recipe to actually freeze. Waters cites a recipe from 1733 that advised would-be ice cream makers to, quote, take tin ice pots, fill them with any sort of cream you like before shutting them tight, end quote, and suggests that because early ice cream recipes tended not to focus on flavor, 19th century chefs felt free to experiment, incorporating asparagus, truffles, and by that I mean the kind that grow underground, and oysters, to name just a few, into their concoctions. I remember when bacon ice cream became really popular a few years ago. A number of food writers described it as though it was some groundbreaking concept, but reading Waters' article, it seems to me like if a Victorian-era chef were to time travel to the 2000s, on hearing about bacon ice cream, they'd react with a bored yawn or something like that. However, I think the fact that ingredients like truffles and oysters were being used in ice cream recipes makes it clear that during at least part of the Victorian era, Ice cream was a treat enjoyed primarily by the upper classes. I mean, I remember seeing truffles, which I'd become aware of thanks to a memorable Iron Chef episode at the Wegmans in State College, Pennsylvania about 15 years ago. I don't remember if they were $300 per ounce or per pound. I know I probably should remember that, but I don't. But whichever it was, they were way out of my price range and probably out of the price ranges of a lot of other shoppers because they were locked up in a plastic case. I imagine that they were just as much of a luxury during the Victorian era. But then came Marshall, who seemed to have gotten the idea that maybe people of more modest means might enjoy making and eating ice cream too because the Book of Ices includes a wide variety of recipes and products that looks like it could appeal to people of different budgets. In addition to 60 recipes for ice cream, ranging in flavors from good old chocolate and vanilla to pineapple, biscuit and brown bread, gooseberry, cucumber, and even white wine, and about 50 more recipes for water ices made from fruit, sorbets, and mousses. The book includes several pages of detailed illustrations of molds, many of which were designed by Marshall herself. 
made of tin, copper, and pewter. Many of these molds were in the shape of the flavor of the dessert that they were intended to represent. For example, if you were planning to whip up cherry ice cream for your next dinner party, you could purchase a quote-unquote very handsome mold in the shape of a basket of cherries. Or, if you had pineapple ice cream in mind, there was a pineapple mold for that. But you could also find Marshall branded molds in the shape of a duck, a fish, a rabbit, and a beehive, to name a few. As the introduction to the section on molds explains, quote, all molds, etc., mentioned in the following pages are kept in stock and can be had wholesale and retail at 32 Mortimer Street West. Molds for ice puddings. All ice molds are made in reputed measure, end quote. From there, Marshall went on to expand her dessert repertoire, which, as I'll get into more in a bit, seems to have been inspired in part by requests from fans, if you will. In her introduction to a later volume, Fancy Ices, which was published in 1894 and has what I think is a delightful cover featuring a polar bear who is, sorry, can't resist, bearing a serving tray with a towering molded ice on it, Marshall states her intention to address the topic of ices, quote, Beyond the simple descriptions given in my book of ices, I have therefore repeated nothing, save the recipe for lemon water ice, page 215, that will be found in that little work, especially as I expect this book will be mostly patronized by those who already have the smaller volume, many of whom have constantly asked for a fuller treatise on more elaborate styles of service." End quote. Fancy Ices not only includes longer recipes than the Book of Ices, but many of the recipes have, you guessed it, fancier names than the more straightforward ones in the previous book. For example, in Chapter 1 of Fancy Ices, you can find out how to make Auvergne White Cherry Water Ice, a Con Rose Cream Egg, Timballs named for the Duchess of York and Empress Frederick, a fedora bomb, which based on the illustration doesn't look much to me like a fedora hat, but what do I know? Gastronome gooseberry water ice, and you get the idea. As with the previous volume, this book features illustrations of a wide variety of molds of different shapes and sizes that could be purchased through the cookery school. But it also includes a number of Marshall branded ingredients like leaf gelatin, rice cream, cane sugar, and coralline pepper, as well as a Marshall patented freezer, which, quote, is praised by all who know it, end quote, due to its reported price, cleanliness, and rapidity in freezing, a Marshall pat patented ice cave, which apparently could be used not only to freeze ice puddings and souffles, but also offered quote-unquote invalids a way to keep a supply of cold food and beverages handy, a Marshall patented icebreaker and other utensils, and cabinet refrigerators with locking doors. In some cases, Marshall wasn't necessarily inventing anything new. Katz explains that ice cream makers started to be patented in the early 19th century. 
but rather sought to improve upon earlier models with new ones that froze quicker and were more affordable. According to Waters, quote, Marshall knew it was hard for the average person to make or store ice cream, so she decided to help them. She invented, then patented, one of the earliest home ice cream makers, a circular device that cut the time it took to brew ice cream from 20 to 40 minutes down to just three, end quote. In other cases, however, Marshall definitely could be considered avant-garde. Although many of us have probably eaten enough ice cream cones over the years that we're likely to think of sugar or wafer cones as anything but groundbreaking, these crunchy containers didn't exist throughout much of the Victorian era, when street vendors sold ice cream in reusable glasses called quote-unquote licks. And since it was common practice during much of the Victorian era for surgeons to not wash their hands or instruments between patients, it's not much of a stretch to imagine that a lax attitude toward hygiene could be found in other professions. And I think it's safe to suppose that at least a few ice cream vendors did not bother washing glass licks between customers at least some of the time. So it seems possible that a concern for hygiene may have had something to do with Marshall, including a recipe for an edible ice cream cone in Mrs. A.B. Marshall's cookery book, first published in 1888. Waters tells us that although these cones, which Marshall referred to as quote-unquote cornets with cream, don't bear much resemblance to the ones that you're likely to see at the boardwalk or a carnival. They were designed to be eaten on a plate with utensils. A number of historians believe she was the first to even mention such a concept. Or that of liquid nitrogen ice cream, a contemporary trend that is similar to an idea Marshall wrote about in her weekly magazine, The Table, in 1901. According to Waters, Marshall toyed with the idea of using quote-unquote liquid oxygen as a means of freezing ice cream on the spur of the moment at dinner parties. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that Marshall actually tried to do this. Rather, the idea seems to be inspired by scientific papers Marshall had read. But it's kind of mind-blowing that something that's seen as a fad today actually had its roots in an article from 120 years ago. It might be hard to imagine how, between running a successful cooking school and a domestic staffing agency, by the way, writing cookbooks and magazine articles, and designing molds and utensils, Marshall, who also was a mother of four, had any time left over for touring. But leading up to the publication of Mrs. A.B. Marshall's cookery book in 1888, that's exactly what she decided to do. Her first tour, called A Pretty Luncheon, featured stops throughout the UK, in which Marshall, with the help of assistants, prepared meals on a stage in front of crowds of up to 600 people. These well-attended cooking demonstrations not only promoted her cookbooks, but also brought more attention to her school and the products that she sold. And even though she's best known for her desserts, which is why I'm mainly focusing on them in this episode, 
Make no mistake, Marshall was capable of whipping up a wide variety of delectable dishes for just about any meal of the day, including appetizers. Audiences seemed to be as in awe of Marshall herself as they were of her techniques and creations. A review of one of her performances in the August 18, 1887, Newcastle Chronicle states that, quote, we looked with a feeling akin to awe at the graceful, kindly lady who is rapidly raising cookery to a fine art, end quote. Unfortunately, Marshall's health declined rapidly after she was thrown from a horse in 1904, and she passed away in July of 1905, about a month shy of her 50th birthday. Following her death, her husband Alfred tried to continue the business, launching a chain of cooking schools and a household goods retailer. And although the Marshall brand managed to survive until around World War II, it never seems to have enjoyed the kind of success it had seen while Marshall was alive, due in large part to her charismatic personality. And although it might be difficult to believe that someone with this type of legacy was largely forgotten, this seems to have been the case until around the late 20th century, due to a variety of factors, such as the publishing house that acquired the rights to her books in the 1920s, not bothering to keep them in print, a fire in the 1950s that destroyed most of Marshall's personal papers, and changing social attitudes. Katz explains that Marshall was seen by many as representing a quote-unquote lavish aesthetic that fell out of fashion after World War I when, quote, there was a dissenting rejection against Victorian fussiness, end quote. However, I'm glad that the culinary world seems to have rediscovered the so-called Queen of Isis because even in the short time that I've known about A.B. Marshall, I feel her contributions to the field are immense. While we do need to remember that her molds and equipment were cheap and affordable by middle-class standards of the time, which meant that they were largely out of reach of many working-class people, both financially and time-wise, I absolutely believe she gave a larger portion of the population the ability and means to prepare lavish desserts and dinner parties. Also, I think she's a fantastic example of why the Victorian era was such an exciting time in terms of scientific, technological, and cultural discoveries. In addition to the meals and desserts she introduced in her cookbooks and the products she designed, Marshall broke ground doing things we hear a lot about in this day and age, like being an quote-unquote early adopter of technology and building a so-called personal brand, although empire is probably more like it in this case. This will sound corny, but every now and then, I look at the type of influence people like Queen Victoria and Charles Dickens had in their day and imagine that if they were around today, they would totally be Instagram influencers with millions of followers. And reading about the reception that Marshall received on her tours, I can totally picture her maybe starting out by having her own YouTube and TikTok channels and eventually getting her own show on the Food Network and also appearing as a guest chef on other shows 
and selling her products on QVC. But now, I would really like to know what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. Also, if Twitter is still around at the time you're listening to this, it was as of this morning, and I have to say I'm glad, and you would like to follow me there, you can follow me at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. I also created a Mastodon account recently, but still feel like I don't know what I'm doing over there. But if you would like to follow me there, you can do so at is.noda.live slash at Marissa D. And if you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash Marissa DF13 or leave me a tip on Linktree slash The Victorian Variety Show or on the Good Pods app. And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support of my show. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I very much enjoyed researching this one, and I look forward to covering more food-related topics in future episodes. I will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode that is not related to food, but I'm still really looking forward about sharing it with all of you. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a few parting words from A.B. Marshall. I was hoping to find an article that she wrote for an issue of the table because a scholar cited by Wikipedia once said that Marshall's magazine articles, quote, were written in a chatty, witty, and ironic Jane Austen-esque style, end quote. But so far, I haven't been able to come up with much along those lines. But I will keep searching for sure. So, in keeping with the dessert theme and the upcoming holidays, and also thinking of those of you who live in colder climes who may not crave frozen desserts in the middle of winter, I will read Marshall's recipe for Nuremberg gingerbread, which I found in Mrs. A.B. Marshall's cookery book. I haven't actually tried making this yet, but if any of you who are listening are thinking of trying your hand at making this, I sincerely hope you enjoy it, and I would love to hear how it turned out. However, if you are allergic to any nuts or spices, feel free to sit this one out, as this recipe contains almonds, ginger, and nutmeg. Break five whole eggs in a large basin and whip them for five minutes with a whisk. Then add eight powdered cloves, a pinch of ground cinnamon, half a grated nutmeg, quarter of an ounce of ground ginger, 10 ounces of castor sugar, and work all together for about 10 minutes. Then add four ounces of candied lemon and orange peel cut in small dice shapes, and nine ounces of fine flour sifted and warmed, and a pinch of salt. 
When these are well mixed, add half a pound of sweet almonds, blanched and split in halves, and a quarter of an ounce of carbonate of soda, dissolved in two tablespoonfuls of cold single cream. Brush over a deep baking tin with warm butter and paper it with a paper likewise brushed over. Sprinkle it with chopped almonds and pour in the mixture. Brush the top over with a little cold milk and bake in a moderate oven for rather better than half an hour. Then turn it out and cut it in any fancy shapes, such as rounds, squares, diamonds, etc., and serve for afternoon tea or luncheon.